cricket, lovely cricket. At last where I saw it. Cricket, lovely cricket. At last where I saw it. Yardley tried his best. Goddard won the test. They gave the crowd plenty fun. The second test and West Indies won. With those little pals of mine. Hello and welcome to the Willow in the Windies, the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. Joining me this week to discuss the hot topics in the tropics is former England batsman, now commentator, broadcaster and head of sport at the University of the West Indies on the island of his birth, Barbados, Mr Roland Butcher. Hello, Roland. David, good day to you. <laughs> How are you doing there? Extremely well and um, good to hear you. Uh, it's good to catch up with you. Roland, Roland, well, you've been involved on the coaching and development side of sport in the Caribbean for quite some time now. Not only in cricket, but other major sports as well. Are the young in the region as keen to play and learn about sport as they were in the previous generations? Well, David, basically, in terms of, of cricket, uh, there is plenty of cricket being played in Barbados. Uh, all over the place, there's cricket being played. There's more organised cricket and um, I think that's perhaps one of the fundamental reasons um, that we're having problems with our cricket is that you just do not see the youngsters playing amongst themselves, making up the rules, um, umpiring the games, etc., etc. What you find now is that cricket has to be organised, kids have to be taken to the cricket, so when they get there, there's very little for them to do. They don't. These days, children know nothing about preparation of pitches, etc, um, etc. Et Certainly when I was growing up, it was a case of the boys getting together, you made up the games, you made up the rules, somebody bought a bat, somebody bought a ball, uh, if you didn't have it, you learned how to make one, etc, etc. But now everything is organized, so to the point where, you know, you've even got mothers dragging the bags of their children when they get the cricket. So the game has changed, and I feel... The players, perhaps, uh, they're not as hungry and they don't understand the game of cricket, say, as much of previous generations. Mm. Yeah, so it's obviously well documented of the West Indies' decline in uh, in, in recent years. Um, the focus I want to look at, perhaps particularly today, is uh, the limited overs format. Um, I was talking to Reds Pereira last week and he's disappointed that a lot of the age group uh, Tournaments are being played almost predominantly uh, limited overs. Is 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 there too much limited overs cricket being played at the development stage? I think there is too much. I think the emphasis now is on the shorter form of the game. I think it's the wrong emphasis because um, these players just don't get to learn how to play the game. And really, um, you learn to how to play cricket when you're able to bat for long periods ball for long periods and feel for long periods. But if you're just playing the shorter form, where you know you've got a, a stipulated time, a cut-off time, invariably um, you, you get perhaps more exciting batting, but it's on a shorter duration. So I think there's too much of an emphasis of that in the Caribbean. And even now, at regional level, I found I find that this year's under-15, under-17, and even the under-19 cricket is all limited over cricket. So... That is a really good problem, I think, for the Caribbean, and will be in the future. 
Mm. They did say recently, the recently concluded under-19 competition, which was a 50-over competition, the reasons for that was to build towards the under-19 World Cup in, in January. Um, do they have much of a chance in that tournament, do you think? Well, I, I would imagine they would not have a, a great chance because, you know, you know, in the past, when they played the under-19 tournament, it was played over a month, and it was a, a mixture of um, three-day cricket and one-day cricket. Now, one of them going into a straight um, one-day competition, which was nowhere near, it was just been here a couple of weeks, and that was over. If that is preparation for uh, a World 50 over competition, um, then I think that is that is that is a big mistake. I would not, I would be very surprised if they were competitive at the World Cup. But on the other hand, I would not be surprised if they didn't have a great World Cup. Mm. Yes, it's uh, obviously well known that uh, the West Indies senior side has uh, not qualified for the Champions Trophy in 2017, or appears not to have done, uh, unless they can get some ODI fixtures between now and the end of September, though. Uh, Michael Muirhead, the West Indies Cricket Board CEO, did concede this week that they'd exhausted all options in trying to find other opponents that included possibly India or even England, but nobody seems to want to play them. Um, it seems ironic to me, though, that there's so little, at the senior level, domestic 50-over cricket being played. There's only the annual Najico Super 50 tournament that's played... Uh, and has been the last couple of years uh, in Trinidad in, in January. With that being the focus, is is the West Indies doing in? Is it playing enough fifty over cricket to build towards tournaments like the Champions Trophy? Not at all. I mean that that's a two a two week tournament, which really is, is in, in some terms really is a waste of time. I mean you have a two week tournament. How can that be your year's preparation for one day internationals again? best-playing countries and for World Cups. It, it, it really is a poor advertisement uh, for preparation and it is what you've seen in recent times, the results that we've been getting from the senior side. Um, the magical, you know, it's a good idea, but over two weeks, it just really makes no sense whatsoever. Mm. So ultimately, not, not qualifying for the, the Champions Trophy, is that the fault of the players or the fault of the board or, or both? I would feel it's, a, it's an administrative blunder. Um, really, I, I think perhaps there's a lack of understanding. And perhaps the other thing that we tend to do here in the Caribbean is do everything at the last minute. So there's not a lot of forward planning. So had somebody had their eye on the ball, um, they would have taken note very clearly of our ranking. They would have seen all tournaments that we had coming up that we could um, qualify through. And they would have perhaps looked at their contingency um, plans, say, six months ago, in case things did not go the way they wanted to. That obviously didn't happen. And what happened with Pakistan dropping out suddenly put them under pressure and they have not been able to get a replacement. And you see the outcome of that. West Indies not being in the Champions Trophy for the first time. Mm. That is, is an administrative blunder. Mm. Um, Dwayne Bravo and Kieran Pollard were the two most notable uh, absences from the squad in the World Cup and Jason Holder took over as the uh, 50 over captain uh, do you expect to see either of them or perhaps any of the IPL players uh, that the West Indies have playing in the 50 over uh, international side well I guess um, if they make themselves available 
you know, there's, there's Naji Corps cricket coming up. Um, is it the same time as the Big Bash? Who, who knows? So I think those players really have got to make themselves available for West Indies. I don't feel that they should be able to just go and do as they feel like and then suddenly say to the West Indies, well, I'm available next week to play. I, I think they need at some point in time to show this bit of commitment. I'm not saying that they have to play all the, the matches for, for the regional sides, but I think they can organize their international schedules in a way that they fulfill the international schedules, still get in some matches uh, for their franchise. The Australians and others are able to put that in place where the international side get what's required, the regional side get what is required. Everybody's happy. Why can't the West Indian players do that? So Bravo and Ballard need to really look at the international schedule and fix it with the regional schedule, get a good compromise, and then really... If if on form, then nobody can say that they should be selected. Mm. The uh, the biggest stumbling block it seems to have been for the players, apart from obviously the the, the strike that occurred in uh, India, famously, uh, is the financial inducements for playing not so much ODI cricket, but for, the, for Test cricket as well. Uh, Lendl Simmons, Dwayne Barber and Pollard have all made statements uh, indicating they probably wouldn't be available for Test cricket again. But uh, uh, whether they'd be available for one-day international cricket, as you indicated there, the Najiko Super 50 often does coincide with the Big Bash in Australia. Barbados Cricket Association board member Condi Riley recently said that he didn't feel a player should be representing the West Indies in any in the particular format if he hadn't represented the his domestic side, for example. Players not playing in the Najiko Super 50 shouldn't be qualified to play for the West Indies in one-day internationals. Same goes for test matches and four-day uh, four games. But if they play in the CPL, they can play in the international 2020 uh, side. Do you think that's a good idea? Well, I mean, I think obviously the CPL, I, I would say, because that's a regional T20. If they play in that, obviously that's qualification. Um, the Najiko, I'm not saying that they have to play all the games. But I, what I would say is they need to play some part of the tournament in order to qualify because otherwise the other players also would look at it, hang on, we're here playing our trade on the regional level and they're allowed to go off and play the trade in Australia and then come straight back into the site mm. without having played in the regional tournament. So I think they need to find a way whereby they can play some of the games and then forward their case for selection. Hmm. Uh, I do wonder whether we might be about to see a time in which uh, the IPL West Indian players like Bravo and Narayan and the others perhaps are only seen in West Indies colours in the 2020 format. We do of course have the uh, 2020 World Cup coming up in the ne- next year. Colin Croft recently said that he felt the West Indies can win that. Uh, do you agree with him? Well, it, you know, the, the next the next 2020 World Cup I mean, who, who knows the, the form of these players? Uh, will Gale still be the same player that he was? I mean, because Gale really is the main player for any West Indies um, T20 side. So if Gale is fit and, and firing, um, you know, it gives them an opportunity to compete. If for some reason Gale has complications with his back and he's not able to play, even at the T20 level, I mean, that would be a huge blow to any chances that they have got. I don't think Pollard and... Um, Bravo, uh, 
anywhere near as important as a great gear, and, and not even together. Mm-hmm. So um, I think gear really is the key, and him staying fit and maintaining form. Coming through really, uh, you're not seeing a lot of um, players coming through. I think some of the Fletcher has been pretty consistent this year. I mean, can he take in the CPL, can he take that forward? Um, to another season and, and, and be consistent, but he did play pretty well this year. Um, I saw Chad, Chad Walton, I thought, played pretty well this year in the CPL at the top of the order as well. So he must be another um, candidate. But, you know, outside of that, I didn't see a lot of, of new players really pushing themselves forward. Mm. There is uh, speculation at the moment that we, we may still see more changes within the West Indies international setup. Uh, a story was floating around yesterday that um, Dinesh Ramdin has been summoned to Barbados to go and speak to the West Indies cricket board. I don't know whether that's uh, just a flight of fancy or any any truth in that. Um, there's still some people feel that uh, he shouldn't be the Test captain. Uh, do you do you think we might see more more changes on that front? will make a change. I mean, they will have to make a, a change. I mean, I don't think Brandon is the long-term answer um, to the West Indies. Will he improve the performance of the West Indies team now or in the future? Uh, I don't feel that that will happen. So, I think the time will come very soon where West Indies have got to put their hat on someone else and say, okay, we're going to back this young player. We may struggle initially, but we believe that in the long run, uh, this player will still be around and will help um, improve the site. So I think Ramden, if he stays in the job, it will be very short term. Um, so West Indies may just make that break right now. Mm-hmm. I mentioned the word development at the uh, the, the top of the show. Uh, you're obviously right at the forefront of that with your responsibilities at the University of the West Indies. In what what really do you see your job as being in terms of those players? And what are your focuses? Um, well, David, um, I, 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 I have been fairly disappointed in my time back in the region in terms of engagement by the West Indies Cricket Board. I, I, I found it quite extraordinary that um, someone with my experience of international cricket playing all around the world, 20-year professional career, um, level three coach, involved with sports and cricket development at the West, University of West Indies for 11 years, and at no time have they utilised any of my experiences or expertise at all. So I have been extremely disappointed about that. I'm not going to really um, chase after them you know, in order to do anything, because for me, I would have thought that, you know, you, you would have looked to see the sort of experience that is available. Yeah, the University of the West Indies, uh, through Professor Beckles, have recognized that experience, but for some reason, the West Indies Great Board has not recognized that experience. For me, that has been extremely disappointing. Mm. Well, you mentioned there uh, Professor Sir Hilary Beckles, who uh, turned 60 this week, and uh, he certainly has uh, recognised your, your input. Uh, how personally did he get involved uh, within his uh, time with the university in the sports front? Well, I mean, it was through Professor Beckles that I, was, that I came to the university in 2004. Um, he brought me to start uh, the revolution of the sports programme here at the university, and I think in 11 years uh, we have moved a long way in terms of our development in all sports. So 
Gavin certainly were, but he he saw the wisdom um, in bringing me here. Um, you know, he, he he's a great leader. There's no doubt about that. I I have had the very good fortune of um, working with um, two of the greatest leaders that I have certainly um, seen. One in Mike Brady as a, as a captain, and I know um, Professor Hilary Beckles <clears throat> as a leader. So I've been very fortunate to work with these two men. And uh, I've learned a lot from them, and I'm sure that they've learned a lot from me. Um, <laughs> Mike Brilli, uh, in his book, The Art of Capitalism, if you read that, you will find that he has made several references to myself in the terms of conversations that we've had that um, made him think differently about certain things. So, you know, that, that was one of the greatness of, the, of someone like Mike Brilli, who did not, as a captain, feel that he knew it all. You know, he was quite prepared. Um, to have the people involved, listen to what they had to say, and if it made sense, acted upon it. Um, Professor Beckles, a great visionary, and really a man ahead of his time. He knew exactly what this region needed, and you know, put things in place. I've been very fortunate to have worked with him very, very closely for the last 11 years. I don't think that closeness will stop now. He has moved on to Vice-Chancellor of the entire university system, which is um, perhaps a much more demanding uh, position because now he has responsibility for all the campuses. But one of the things he's doing is he's moving sport under his portfolio as vice chancellor. So I think sport is in very good hands in the university system. Mm. Um, I'm delighted you mentioned uh, Mike Bailey's uh, Art of Captaincy there. Uh, you actually preempted what would have been my next question and answered it already. Uh, it, the Art of Captaincy by Mike Bailey has just recently been uh, uh, reissued and he's given a, a lot of interviews. Uh, he's also been honest enough to talk about what could perhaps be failures. He didn't always manage to get through to some players. There was a very entertaining article this week uh, about another of your former Middlesex colleagues, uh, Phil Edmonds, and he never quite got the handle of Phil Edmonds, did he? Well, I, um, I, I guess my reading would be the first to say that, you know, there, there are times where perhaps, um, you know, maybe he had conceded. But let, let, let's have a look at the situation with both players. I mean, you had, um, here was Mike really. Um, trust the captaincy upon him in the early 60s. Um, a man, Cambridge graduate, Phil uh, Edmonds was a Cambridge graduate. Um, Mike Brilly was a, a good county player. I mean, he wasn't a good test player, but he was not as bad a player as people thought he was. He was a heavy scorer in county cricket. And you must forget, you must forget that as a, as a young England player, he scored a 300 for England. In, in South Africa. Mm. So, you know, here was this man taking over, a very intellectual man, a deep thinker of the game. And Phil Edmonds, I think, you know, Phil Edmonds was, no doubt about it, one of the best sportsmen that I have played with and against. The only thing with Phil, he just didn't like training. He was quite lazy in that area. But in terms of bowling, you know, he was a quality bowler, terrific catcher, and a capable batsman. His downfall was that uh, he didn't work very hard in his game. Now, Mike Brilly is someone who, because of his limited natural talent, was someone who had to work very hard. So, basically, he liked people to work hard on their game. So, there was a clash there because Philip just relied purely on talent. Uh, Mike Brilly wanted him, like everybody else, to put the hard work in. And, you know, Edmonds, you know, he, Edmonds was a maverick. There's no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he was somebody that I really liked. Um, you know, we sat next to each other. Um, you know, we had lots of discussions. 
most competitive player that I have to the point that he used to even intimidate some of our players. I'm not in a nasty way, but just in his tone. But, you know, so the relationship between those two at times, you got a situation where there were two individuals that would not back down. <laughs> Brady was not going to back down. Edwards was not going to back down. So you always had. But once it came to playing the cricket, you know, there was United in that, in that this Middlesex side, once we took to the field, um, was a United side on the field. We didn't have to like each other. <laughs> you know, we were a group of individuals in that dressing room. But once we played cricket, Everybody knew the job they had to do and they got on with it. So, you know, that relationship, a lot has been said about it. And um, I think also Edmonds probably thought because of his more natural ability that perhaps he should be captain as well. So um, so you, you have these clashes in any team and um, it did not stop the, the Middlesex side from being a very, very strong, important side. Mm. Well, that... that article I was referencing, I, I think I read it in All Out Cricket, this uh, magazine this week, and that can be found online. I recommend anybody to go and uh, search that out. Before we go, Roland, uh, I must just ask you about your reaction to England winning the Ashes. Uh, you were one of the few to not predict a, an emphatic uh, Australian victory, but you did predict 2-2, didn't you? Yes, yes, I do. Uh, David, sorry, I felt that this season, the series, I, I never felt that Australia could beat England in England. There's no doubt about that. I thought they would be good enough to win some matches. I was not sure how England would perform. I felt they would win matches also. So my prediction at the start of the series really was a 2-2 draw. You may have remembered uh, some time ago I emailed you to that to that effect. Mm. So I felt it was a 2-2 draw. You at that point also had predicted a 3-1 win to England. So <laughs> you may be wrong, I might be wrong because it could be a 4-1 win to England. <laughs> or it, it could be a 3-2. And I, I would have certainly lost my draw. I've lost my draw already. And you were perhaps the only one that could win money at the moment because you stand 3-1. <laughs> but I, I always felt that Australia would would struggle. You, you look at the Australian side, better Australian teams have been to England and have not won an Ashes series. You have to go up beyond the 2005 series mm. for an Australian victory. So the, the recent history is not great in England, and that's with better sides. If you look at this Australian side, the only one with serious uh, first-class um, experience is Chris Rogers mm. because of his in Middlesex. You look at the rest of the side, even the great Michael Clark, who is a great player in Australian cricket, hasn't got a great record in England and has not played a lot of cricket in England. The rest of the batting, very, very, very suspect in English conditions. Big blow losing Ryan Harris at the start of the series. I think he would have made a huge difference to the attack, particularly in English conditions. Has a pretty good record. The, the sort of bowler that I think would flourish in the conditions that we actually saw um, in this in this competition, but take nothing away from England. I think England have played the Australians in their game in a very very aggressive manner. Uh, got in their face early, uh, and the fact that Mitchell Johnson really English conditions will not suit him. He's a hit the wicket bowler. Um, in Australia, the ball will bounce and fly here. In England, as you know, you've got to pitch the ball a bit further up and try to swing it. He's not that type of bowler. So. England have played them and thoroughly deserve to, to have won the series. Um, but they can't sit on their laurels because the next time they go down under for another Ashes series, <laughs> um, it, it, it could well be a different story again. Yes, I, 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 think, um, I think us Englishmen have to enjoy holding the Ashes 
while we have them. Um, on that note, I think it's time to lift the bells and call time. Um, Roland, thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, really, it's always a great pleasure to talk to you, and, um, you know, we certainly love to talk to you again any time you want to. Uh, we shall certainly do that. Yes, I'd like to thank you, and I'd like to thank everybody for listening. This has been the Willow in the Windies, the Caribbean Cricket Podcast, and until next time, it's goodbye. <laughs>